All right, so this morning we are continuing our summer message series that we're calling But God. We're, we're going to be turning in our Bibles to Luke chapter 12, so I encourage you to have your Bibles with you. If you didn't bring one with you today, I encourage you to bring it next time. Uh, in the meantime, you can grab a blue Bible from the rack in front of you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12, the third book in the New Testament, as we look today at one of the most interesting but God statements in the entire Bible. This one we're going to find in Luke 12 today says, but God said to him, you fool. That sounds exciting already, doesn't it? And so we'll look at the context, look at what Jesus meant by that important message today from God's word. One of those pivotal but God statements as Jesus was teaching the parables to the crowds of thousands during his ministry years. And so would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to dive into your word. Uh, Lord, just like when we take communion each week, there's the, the tendency, Lord, there's the, there's the possibility that it, be, it could become rote, that it could become stale or routine. Lord, I pray that uh, you would just speak to us your fresh word today. It's a reason you say that it is living and active, your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us afresh. Speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, speak to our spirits, O God, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. So please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, if you're using one of those blue Bibles, you'll find this on page 1031, 1031. The rest of you just turn to that third book in your New Testament, Luke chapter 12. And we'll be starting here in just a moment in verse 13. So by the time we get to Luke chapter 12, Jesus was likely uh, about at the halfway point of his three-year ministry uh, before being nailed to the cross. Uh, By this point in his ministry, Jesus had become wildly popular. By this point in his ministry, it was quite common for crowds of many thousands to gather wherever Jesus was. Uh, He got to a point where he couldn't even be in the little towns anymore. They just couldn't contain all the people who would come to hear him or come to see him do miracles. And so he began going out into the the desert regions or the countryside where there was a little bit more open space. And so there were crowds of thousands routinely gathering to hear Jesus. And such was the case here in Luke chapter 12. In verse 1 of chapter 12, if you want to skip back there, notice what it says in the first verse. It says, while a crowd of many thousands had gathered, they were trampling one another. And Jesus began to speak to his disciples first. And so here at the start of chapter 12, it makes it clear, not only is there a crowd of thousands, uh, there's so many there, they're trampling on each other. And try to wrap our minds around how crowded it was. Look around right now at the number of people that are in the room today. Okay, get, a, get an idea in your mind. Now, I want you to take the number of people in this room today and multiply it by 10. You multiply by 10 the number of people in this room and still crammed into this one room. That begins to give us an idea of how crowded it was. They couldn't be sitting in chairs. They had to push the chairs not only to the side walls but out the door so that there could be standing room only for this huge crowd that was gathering to hear Jesus. When you're getting trampled, that's a pretty big crowd. When we were with the kiddos on Thursday, uh, entertaining them a bit as their parents were at the resource tables, uh, the teenage boys and I were playing some different games. And one of the games we played had all the kids running from the center 
to the right side, to the left side, whenever we called out a certain word. Uh, the, the, the game is called either shipwreck or submarine, and so we call out something, they have to run in a cluster. And so we called out something, and this poor little kid on the steps was being trampled on because the kids wanted to get over here. And so it hit me, you know what, maybe, Dane, this wasn't the brightest idea when you have like 100 kids up here in front of the front row. And so it must have been like that when Jesus was teaching. Huge crowd. And so Jesus begins teaching his disciples first, but then begins teaching uh, the people in the crowd, these thousands that were hanging on Jesus' every word. Now, let's pick up in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. Say amen if you're there. Here we go. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We're going to go ahead and stop there for now. Considering how crowded the place was where Jesus was teaching, I think it's safe to say that this man in the crowd didn't use a very quiet voice. You can imagine he's surrounded by thousands of others who were coming to listen to Jesus, and chances were if he was was whispering or if he spoke in his normal conversation voice, uh, Jesus wouldn't hear word one of what he said. And so you can imagine he blurts this out, To Jesus, as this man is surrounded by thousands of people. I want you to notice in that verse, verse 13, he he doesn't ask Jesus a question. He simply blurts out an order. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, why would this man come to Jesus with this request? And that's being nice, calling it a request. He's blurting it out. It's more of a command. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Why would he come with this request? Well, in Jesus' day, and you can find this in just about any commentary you read on Luke chapter 12, in Jesus' day, it was very common when two men in Israel had squabbles with each other, they would take that squabble, they would take that disagreement to their local Jewish rabbi. And that Jewish rabbi, that Jewish teacher, that Jewish holy man, he would listen to that dispute. He would listen to each man's argument, and he would come down with a decision. And when they heard that decision, they had gone to the rabbi. They, when, they, when they came to him, there was this unwritten rule that they would accept whatever verdict he handed down. And so routinely men with squabbles would go to their local rabbi, and he would give an answer, he would give a verdict, and they would run with it. And so... As this man comes to Jesus, it's pretty clear that most of those in the crowd that day held Jesus as a rabbi. So this wasn't a strange thing in the man's own mind to do, to go to Jesus the rabbi with this dispute that he and his brother couldn't sort out themselves. And it probably wasn't strange to any of the thousands in the crowd that heard this man blurted out. It seems weird to us in our culture to be so rude as to yell out in a crowd of thousands to the guy that's trying to teach. But probably to those in the crowd, it wasn't strange at all. Jesus was a rabbi. This guy's going to the rabbi with his concern. So this man was just taking his legal squabble to Jesus, the rabbi. The man thought this was a good idea. The crowd likely thought this was a good idea. But as Jesus responds to the man in verse 14, it's pretty clear that Jesus didn't think it was a very good idea. Look at how he responds in verse 14. Jesus replied, I'm going to try to get the tone right here as I imagine it. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And that's it. Wow. 
That's some way to respond to this guy. It's a rather harsh answer, don't you think? Jesus didn't ask the man for more details. You know, tell me a little bit more. Okay, I, I need to find out a little bit more about this argument with your brother. He doesn't ask him any questions. He doesn't ask for more information. Jesus didn't validate the man's hurt feelings. Oh, I'm so sorry that your brother has wronged you. I'm so sorry you're going. No, no validation of the man's feelings. Jesus didn't say, gee, I'm really, really sorry. I'm kind of busy teaching a few thousand people right now. But I tell you what, come back right after I'm done and I will hear you out completely. I'll give you my undivided attention. I'll even give you a signed autograph on my shawl and you can take it home to impress your friends. None of that. Jesus doesn't do that at all. Jesus simply and very curtly says, man who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you and with that jesus began addressing both the men it would seem and the crowd he was done talking specifically about this man's request that's pretty interesting that's pretty interesting jesus is not going to say anything else yeet that was for you guys up there they taught me a new cool word uh, last week, yeet. I'm like, what on earth is yeet? It means like to run, to hurry, to get out of there. And it also has a secondary meaning. What's that? Throw? Okay, I'll try to fit that in later in the sermon. We'll see. Okay, so he's done. He's not going to address this specifically anymore. I like how Warren Wearsby addresses this. He says, rabbis were expected to help settle legal matters, but Jesus refused to get involved. Why? Because he knew that no answer he gave would solve the real problem, which was covetousness in the hearts of the two brothers. As long as both men were greatly or greedy, excuse me, as long as they were both greedy, no settlement would be satisfactory. Their greatest need was to have their hearts changed. Like so many people today, they wanted Jesus to serve them, but not to save them. Those are some pretty powerful words, don't you think? Like many people today, they want Jesus to serve them, but not to save them. I think Wearsby is likely correct. Chances are Jesus didn't get involved with these two brothers, at least in part because there was no point in getting involved with their squabble. Both brothers being Jewish would have known that Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 17 is very clear that when a father dies and that father has sons... The oldest son gets a double portion of what each and every one of the younger sons would get. It's spelled out there in Deuteronomy 21, 17, and every Jewish man knew that verse well. And so God had already deliberated on this matter. He'd already made it clear the oldest gets twice as much as the younger one. So these guys are squabbling over something that God had already spoken about. So there was really no point for Jesus to speak about it further. They knew the right thing to do. They knew what God's will was. There was no point. Jesus understood that the elephant in the room was that these two brothers were self-centered. Not only that, these two brothers were greedy. And their self-centeredness and their greed were overshadowing their moral judgment. So no matter what verdict Jesus would hand down about the inheritance, the brother's real problem wouldn't be fixed. They would still be sinful men separated from God by their self-centeredness and their greed. So beginning in verse 15, Jesus does what he does so well. He takes this as a teachable moment 
to teach us about a much greater truth, a much more foundational need. Let's pick up in verse 15 of Luke 12. Jesus told them this parable. Now them, we we don't know for sure, but I'm guessing by them it means both of these brothers who were squabbling and all of the crowd around them as well. Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, here it is, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Now Jesus waves this red flag in verse 15. Notice what he says in verse 15. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Let me give you that same verse, verse 15, in a few different translations. So I want to make sure this sinks in. The Phillips translation says it this way in verse 15. Be on your guard against covetousness in any shape or form, for a man's real life in no way depends, in no way depends upon the number of his possessions. How about the Living Bible? In the Living Bible we read, Beware. Don't always be wishing for what you don't have. For real life and real living are not related to how rich we are. How many of you say amen to that? Real life can be given to you even if you live paycheck to paycheck. Isn't that good news? Real life and real joy is at your fingertips in Jesus Christ even if you live in the cheapest, smallest, oldest apartment in Atalanto. No matter where you live, no matter what your paycheck may be, no matter how many things other people have that you do not have, if you have Jesus Christ, oh, it's so true. Your life in no way depends on the number of your possessions. Real living is in no way related to how rich you are. And then the message translation says it this way, take care, protect yourself against the least bit of greed You see, life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. Isn't that true? Life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. Some of you in the room today may have a lot. Compared to the rest of the world, all of us have a lot. But compared to other Americans, maybe some of you today have a lot. Never fall into the trap that what you have defines you. It never does, even when you have a lot. I think you get the idea from these different translations. Jesus looked at these two greedy brothers in the crowd, and after hearing only one of them speak only one sentence, Jesus could perceive what most in the crowd couldn't perceive. Their greed was consuming them and was placing them on the slippery slope to hell, an eternity separated from God. And obviously Jesus didn't want this for them. So he told them a parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He hoped that these two brothers would relate with the man in the story and learn from his deadly mistake. 
that they would learn from his foolish blunders so that they themselves wouldn't suffer the same fate as this man in the parable. Within this parable, Jesus paints the picture of this rich man who had a very productive harvest one year. He had all these crops coming in, more than he had expected. So after he had filled his barns, he realized he still had more produce to put into the barns, more grain to put into the barns, and he didn't have room for the extra. And so he came up with this brilliant idea. He thought of it maybe in the middle of the night, and he thought, this is just the the, the greatest idea I've ever had in my whole life. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones so I can hold all of my stuff. We say it that way, it doesn't exactly sound too brilliant, does it? I'm going to build bigger garages, bigger barns, a bigger house. I'm going to buy a a bigger storage unit down the street, not with a single wide garage door, but with a double wide. And if I need a second double wide or a third double wide or a fourth double wide, they're running that special one month free. So you know what? I'm just going to get more and more and more and more storage space so I can hold on to all my stuff. And that way I'll be able to sit pretty and eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy the rest of my life gorging myself on all my stuff. I want you to notice in verses 17 through 19, just three verses, verses 17 through 19, I want you to notice how often this man uses the pronouns I and me. He says, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then uh, there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, drink and be merry. Now, if you are counting the eyes and the me's and the my's in those three verses, you found that 11 times this man used one of those pronouns in just three verses. 11 times. Now, let me ask you, how many times in these three verses does this rich man mention his wife? How many times does he mention his kids? None. How many times does he mention his neighbor that may not have had as good of a crop? How many times does he mention the poor guy down the street who's got his little cardboard sign and doesn't have any food? How many times does he mention the poor guy in town? How many times does he mention his church storing up and getting more so he can be a blessing to his congregation? How many times does he mention his local synagogue? Let me ask you this. How many times does this man in verses 17, 18, or 19 mention God? Not a single time. Not a single time. This man was all about me, myself, and I. He was drowning in his own greed, and when his life was about to end, God looked at him and said, You fool. I gave you all of this, and it was all for nothing. What a waste of a good life. What a waste of the gifts and talents and things that I blessed you with. What a waste. Now, here's a quick definition of greed. You might want to fill in these blanks on your handout if you've got that in front of you. Greed, you could define this way. It is an unquenchable thirst for getting more and more of something we think we need in order to be truly satisfied. It's an unquenchable thirst 
for getting more and more of something I, we think we need in order to be truly satisfied. Many people are greedy for money. Many others are greedy for things that money can buy. Still others are greedy for power or position. Regardless of what someone's greed is targeting, Jesus' point is loud and clear. Greed is toxic. It can destroy our lives here on earth, and as we see in the example in the parable, it can even send ripple effects through eternity. That's a very important takeaway from Jesus' parable of the rich fool. And I'd like to share with you over the next few minutes four dangers of greed that remains unchecked. Four dangers of greed that we can find in God's Word. Number one, danger number one, greed subtly replaces God on the throne of our lives with something else. Greed subtly replaces God on the throne of our lives with something else. In Proverbs chapter 30, I won't have you turn there to save time, but Proverbs 30 is is so great. Verses 7 through 9 in Proverbs 30 The wise teacher says this, Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Number one, keep falsehood and lies far from me. And then he gets to number two, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread, otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. He says, God, I ask you for two things, and the second of those things you could divide into two. So let's look at all three together. So number one, I think this is a prayer that we can relate with. God, I I pray that you do not refuse me this. Keep falsehood and lies from my lips. Have you ever prayed a similar prayer to that? God, help me to speak the truth. God, you are a God of truth. I want to speak the truth. Sometimes I've got these lies that come out of my mouth. Sometimes I say things I shouldn't be saying. God, would you guard my lips? Would you allow what comes out of my mouth to honor and glorify you? Ever prayed a prayer like that? I hope so. How about this second one? God, I'm flat broke. And I don't like being broke. God, help me out. Meet my needs. Help me out, God. I need something. I need to be able to pay my bills. I don't know where the money's coming from. I need to be able to put food on my table. I don't know where the food's coming from. God, don't let me be broke because I may be tempted to steal or do something shifty to get my needs met. Have you ever prayed, God, give me what I need to meet my needs? Probably every hand should go up one way or another, you've said, because it's right there in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread. God, meet my needs. I don't want to be poverty-stricken, holding a little cardboard sign. Now, the second part of that second prayer, we'll call it number three, I bet you can't relate with as much. God, please don't make me rich. Anyone ever prayed that one? How many of you have ever prayed, God, please... Please, no matter what you do in my life, please do not let me win the lottery. Ever prayed that? God, no matter what you do, please, under no circumstances, allow my 401ks or my mutual funds to skyrocket in value. 
Please, God, I don't want my retirement account to blossom. Please, I, just keep it at a bare minimum for me. Would you do that, God? Anyone ever prayed that? Uh, God, under no circumstances, get me into a larger house. Under no circumstances, Lord, build my checking account so I'm not living paycheck to paycheck anymore. God, please don't give me more. Please don't make me rich. Please don't help me win the lottery. Please don't cause my investments to flourish. We don't pray that kind of prayer, do we? But it's not a bad idea. There's a reason it's in God's Word. It's in God's Word because the teacher knew well that oftentimes you'll find a hundred Christians who can handle poverty easier than they could handle riches. It's true. Many of us can handle being without much better than we can handle having too much. We have to be so, so careful not to allow riches to pull us in and pull us away from God. It's a good thing to pray what this teacher recommends in Proverbs for us to pray is because money is not the main thing. Being rich is not the main thing. Having lots of stuff is not the main thing. Sadly, without even realizing it, when we gradually become consumed by greed for money and stuff, we gradually replace God on the throne of our hearts with something else. Our hearts no longer beat for God. They beat for stuff. Our hearts no longer stay focused on God. They stay focused on stuff. Our heart's number one goal is no longer to bring glory and honor to God, but to bring more money into my checking account and more stuff into my house. Jesus says point blank in Luke 16:13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, God chooses not to bless most of us with lots of material riches, and you and I need to understand that by doing that, God is really doing us a favor. <laughs> may have never considered that before, but it's true. By not blessing you with a ton of money, God's really doing you a favor. Danger number two. Danger number two. Greed is a root of all kinds of evil. Greed is a root of all kinds of evil. I want you to turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want you to see this for yourself in God's Word. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 6. If you're using one of those blue Bibles, you'll find this on page 1177. Page 1177, 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's a great passage. Paul writes, starting in verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This passage is so rich. There's so much in here. Let me just hit a few highlights. Look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we take nothing out of it. So he who dies with the most toys still dies, right? He who dies with the most toys still dies, and 
As a wise man once said, I've said this before, I'll probably say it again, as I think it's so apropos with this topic, you will never see a hearse headed to a funeral pulling a U-Haul. Never going to see it. It just doesn't happen. You can't take it with you. In verses 6 and 8, we see the beautiful little word content. If we have food and clothing, in other words, if we have our basic needs met, we should be content with that. Godliness with contentment is great gain, he says. In other words, you and I will be much better off if we have less stuff to worry about or distract us from God. Just yesterday, Christine and I were talking about this. I've got a few days off this next week, and, and so we're going to be gathering some stuff and heading down to the Salvation Army. It's time to bless some people with some more stuff because uh, my youngest daughter was at a, a diabetes camp down in San Diego last week, and it was amazing. They had uh, rock climbing walls. They brought in the top-of-the-line tour buses. This thing must have been majorly subsidized. We had to pitch in 100 bucks for a camp that probably should have cost about 1000 so they had all these giveaways. They were just blessing these kids with all this stuff. But she showed me all this stuff. I'm thinking, that's a lot of stuff. That's going to clutter up our house more. And so we try to, when we think about it, as we have new stuff come in the door, try to get rid of some older stuff to go back out the door. Because otherwise what happens is we've got a three-car garage that you can only park two cars in, or you've got a two-car garage that you can only park one car in, or you've got a one-car garage that you can't even fit a motorcycle in, because no matter how big our garages are, we fill them with stuff if we're not careful. And so we have to have a habit of making sure that we don't accumulate too much stuff, because stuff means more problems. More problems means more distractions, and more distractions mean we can't focus on God and his work as much as God would want us to. I stumbled across this quote from the great poet Henry David Thoreau this last week, and I think this quote is amazing. I love it. I hope you like it too. David Thoreau said, that man is the richest whose pleasures are the cheapest. Isn't that good? I love that because I'm a certifiable cheapskate. I love that quote, that man is the richest whose pleasures are the cheapest. So I enjoy, I really, really enjoy getting a good deal. I've told like 100 people that I got this great deal on this above ground pool a few months ago. I bought it on Craigslist. They spent five grand on that thing with the deck to get it all together in their yard and four years later decided they weren't using it enough. So I got it for 300 bucks, 5,300. I'm thinking, what a deal. What a deal. Earlier this year, I got one of those adjustable beds, so I'm all ready for retirement. This thing's cost 1500 bucks new. I think I got it for about 300 on Craigslist. Woohoo! I got a good deal. Now I can sit up in bed and watch TV if I want to. I got my adjustable bed. I can hit vibrate if I want. Man, this is, this is living high on the hog, folks. I got myself a deal. And so I, I like the idea of being able to save on what we spend Excuse me, yeah, to save on what we spend, and then you can use the other, hopefully to be a blessing or to meet other needs. But I, I just love this little quote, that man is the richest whose pleasures are the cheapest. If we can learn to be content with less, God's word guarantees us that we will find joy and happiness and contentment come more easily. Sometimes too much stuff equals too many distractions. Notice what Paul says in verses 9 and 10. He basically lets us know in no uncertain terms 
that if we really, really want to get rich, we're going to be tempted a lot along the way. The road to wealth is paved with many traps. There are many alluring temptations that if we give in will lead us to do some foolish and harmful things. We have to be so, so careful to make sure that we make our money and our possessions kneel before the Lordship of Christ. Did you catch that? We have to make sure that our money and our possessions kneel before the lordship of Jesus Christ. If we don't make Jesus Lord of our money, our money will be Lord of us. And if we don't make sure that we use our money for the love of God, we will find ourselves loving money. And as he says so clearly, the love of money, verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money and even wealth can be a wonderful tool in the hands of God's followers to do His work. Virtually everything we do at First Christian Church requires some money. Whether it's taking care of the staff salaries or keeping the air conditioning on or purchasing the chairs you're sitting in or making sure we've got the curriculum for our kids, whatever it is we do, pretty much all of it requires money. And so when people out of their wealth bless the church and and put it into God's work, believe me, that's an amazing thing. But God's word gives us so many warnings. We have to be careful when God gives us wealth. We must make sure it submits to the lordship of Christ. We must place our money and our things in God's hands to do God's work. But money by itself makes a terrible God. It's a wonderful tool in God's hands, but itself, by itself, it's a terrible God. Danger number three. Greed takes our focus off others and puts it on ourselves. Greed takes our focus off others and puts it on ourselves. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus in Matthew 19, many of you remember that story. He came to Jesus and he, he said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, don't you? Oh, sure I do. I do know I do know them. I've followed them since I was a little boy. I don't steal and I don't kill and I don't do any of that stuff that's on the top ten list. And Jesus says, that's good. Now I want you to do this. Go home, sell everything that you own, give it all to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Come back and follow me. And remember what happened says the man went away very sad because he was very wealthy. What was Jesus getting at there? This man didn't even realize that his stuff had been consuming him. His stuff had been consuming him. He wasted way too much time counting his money and thinking about his possessions. He ate, drank, and slept stuff. And that resulted in him being a man who was all wrapped up in himself. This rich fool in Jesus' parable parallels this man who was the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. Both of these guys had the same problem. Their pronouns were all I, me, and my. They were all wrapped up in themselves. And so when Jesus spoke to that rich young ruler in Matthew 19, he made it clear the stuff is getting in the way. So for you, what you need to do is get rid of all the stuff. You will no longer at that point have the distractions. You will at that point no longer be worrying night and day about someone stealing your stuff. You'll then be able to focus on God and his work and his plan for your life. Come follow me at that point. The man went away sad. He was unwilling to do that. Because he was not willing to take stuff off of the throne of his life. 
That's never the way that God called us to live. He never called us to live with stuff on the throne of our lives. We are called to, in humility, consider others better than ourselves. We are called to love our neighbors. We are called to put Jesus first and others second and ourselves third. But in the rat race of trying to get richer and richer and richer, our greed takes our focus off of others and puts it on ourselves. And in God's kingdom, that's completely unacceptable. When money stops being a godly tool and starts becoming the object of our affections, it's time for that stuff to go. Fourth and final danger. There are many others called out in God's word, but I figured you didn't want me to preach for an hour and a half today. So we'll stop with number four today. Greed here on earth will leave you flat broke in heaven. Greed here on earth will leave you flat broke in heaven. It's the parable of parables. I'm talking about the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. Within it, Jesus tells, many of you know the story about a farmer that was going out to sow seed, and that seed falls on four different kinds of soil. The first soil, do you remember what it was? It falls along the the path. You can think of it as a sidewalk. The second soil was a rocky soil. Throws it down, there's a bunch of pebbles, a, a bunch of a decorative rock like we get up here in the desert, and so those roots couldn't really get down because it was rocky soil. The third was thorny soil. There were thorns, and they were choking out the new life of the plant. And then the fourth was the good soil. It was fertile and rich. And as Jesus is explaining what each of those soils represents, he says this in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 13. He says, The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word of God, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it making it unfruitful. So he says those who receive the gospel message and accept the gospel message, some of them are like this third soil, the thorny soil. They put down their roots into the soil, but as they start to grow in their faith, the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out their life. Now, it seems pretty clear to me that he's not describing there a Christian who loses his salvation. I don't think he's calling into question that that Christian who had given his life to Christ is still saved. What Jesus seems to be clearly saying is that this man, this Christian, will get to the end of his life and he'll go to heaven and he will have absolutely nothing to show for his life here on earth because he wasted all of his time chasing after riches instead of chasing after Jesus and doing his work. I like how it's said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 3 that one day all of us as Christians will stand before God. Remember, we as Christians have a different judgment than those who have rejected Christ during this life. Those who reject Christ, according to Revelation chapter 20, will stand before God at the great white throne judgment where the books will be open. Their names will not appear in the book of life. So everything in their life that they did against God that's recorded in those other books, they will be judged by it. And they'll be separated from God for eternity because of what's in those books. Now, Christians, meanwhile, are going to have a judgment of their own. We call that the Bema Seat Judgment, the judgment of reward. And so those that appear before the Bema Seat Judgment, Christians, their eternity isn't in question. They are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. So their eternity isn't in question. But in 1 Corinthians, what Paul makes very clear is all of our lives 
are going to be fed through the flames as we stand before God at that judgment. And everything that we did during our lives that was selfish is going to be consumed in the flames. Everything that we did in our lives that was a complete waste of time spiritually is going to be consumed in the flames. Everything that was focused on me, myself, and I will be consumed in the flames. The only things from our lives that will come out on the other side of those flames are the things that were done for the honor and glory of God to advance the cause of Jesus Christ. What we did for others in love, what we did as a blessing to others, what we did in serving the Lord, all of that will make it through the flames so that when you and I go to heaven, we have something to show for our Christian lives. One of the greatest tragedies in this life is a Christian who gives their life to Christ at a young age and lives for 50 years as a Christian, and they die and stand before God, and they have absolutely nothing to show for their lives on earth as a Christian. It's one of the greatest tragedies in life. You and I are called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Greed can consume us and and keep us from focusing on the needs of others. Greed can consume us and keep us from doing the work of God. And so Paul warns us, you have to be so careful. Jesus warns us, you have to be so careful. Greed here on earth will leave you flat broke in eternity. If you and I are believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we will make it to heaven. That's not in question. What is in question is whether or not each of us will have something to show for our lives here on earth. Will you have any heavenly rewards? Will I have eternal riches waiting for me? Will you and I get to hear those six most beautiful words in the English language? Well done, good and faithful servant. I live for those words. And I would be devastated if I don't get to hear those when I stand before Jesus Christ someday. If we allow greed to take root in our lives, not only will we not be able to take our, eternal, our, our earthly riches with us, we'll not have any riches awaiting for us once we get there. So, what should we do with the money and the stuff that God blesses us with? First of all, I encourage you to thank God every day for what He has given you. Thank God for that paycheck you get, whether it's a welfare check, whether it's food stamps, whether it's an EBT card, whether it's a paycheck, whatever. Thank God for that income that comes into your house each month. Thank God for that house or that apartment you get to live in. Thank God when you sit down at that table and you have food in front of you to feed your hungry belly. Thank God that you have clothes on your back and they don't have holes all in them. They're not all ripped. I wore some socks to church the other day and I was working on this sermon and I kicked up my feet and Holly, our secretary, walked in the office. I had forgotten I put, in, put on holy socks that day. I had a hole this big in the bottom of my right heel. But that wasn't because God hasn't blessed me with socks. I just didn't do laundry. God has blessed us with the clothes we wear. God has blessed us with our health. God has blessed us with our church. God has blessed me with you. God has blessed you with those sitting next to you. We need to thank God every day. And as I said, something that is so important, when God gives you a little bit or when God gives you a lot, make sure that you submit your money and your material possessions to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Make sure that stuff you have bows at the cross, that it's used to serve Him, that it's used to bless others, that it's used to do His work. 
God gives you stuff so you can meet your own needs and the needs of your family. And as he gives you extra, he wants you to use that extra to be a blessing. Because we'll no no longer ever again be able to haul that U-Haul behind a hearse. Maybe we had some fanciful ideas in the past, but now God has revealed the truth to us. It ain't going to happen. And so God has called us to be a blessing with what he has had, what he has given us. God has called us to be a blessing with the blessings that he has entrusted to our care. Let's pray. Father God, you have been so good to us. As we sing sometimes, you are a good, good father. And I am loved by you. Lord, thank you for meeting my needs and the needs of my wife and the needs of my kids. Thank you for meeting the needs of each of my brothers and sisters in Christ here today. Thank you for meeting the needs of our church. You always come through. Lord, here at FCC today, we're calling this out as Senior Appreciation Day. And Lord, I could rattle off for a very long time all the seniors in this church that have sacrificed so much over the years. And most of them, Lord, Lord, they don't want the accolades. They don't want the pats on the back. In many cases, don't want even anyone to know what they've done because they're content to know that you saw it, that you will reward it, that you and others were blessed by it. I pray, O oh God, that those of us who are younger here today would learn the lesson from those, Lord, who have served you longer than we have to give sacrificially, to use what we have, Lord, as a tool for your work, for your glory, and the advancement of your cause, Lord Jesus Christ, here on earth. Help us, Lord, to be found as faithful stewards until you call us home and speak those six words to us, well done, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus' name.